Dave was talking about Facebook. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you are on Facebook? Does Facebook make you as insecure as it makes me? Or maybe I'm just insecure to start with. But when I look at Facebook, everybody looks great. They're all, I mean, they're kids, they're grandchildren, they're all prim, they're all proper, they're all dressed well. And my grandchildren look more like this. You know, I, I, it's not a Facebook kind of thing. And so I start to feel really insecure. So the other day I put this up on Facebook and I said, this just goes to show you, you can look good and still lack discretion. <laughs> so just need to remember that. You're going to look good and still lack discretion. I got to get that off the screen. Ooh. Uh, we have three more books before we finish the Old Testament. Just three. Who would have thought three years ago we would have made it? <laughs> but we have. Or at least three. I'm going to be really angry too if we get down to that last one and then Jesus comes back and I don't get to finish it. <laughs> so after three years you should finish something. So, Okay, last week we looked at... We didn't look at that last week. We looked at this last week. That's what we looked at last week. The book of Zephaniah. The key there, whoop, I jumped too far. Sorry about that. Let's back up. That picture scared me so much I had to jump past it. We looked at the book of Zephaniah. It's a Z fanning eye. Zephaniah. That's the key to remember what book it is. And the, the theme of this book is the day of the Lord. That sun represents day. Lord, it's so Zephaniah was all about the day of the Lord. And uh, remember, Zephaniah was... Uh, come into the kingdom at, at a good time. He came into the kingdom during uh, King Josiah's reign. Josiah was one of the few, two or three, really good kings during that time after Solomon. There were, wasn't many, but, Zephaniah, uh, but Josiah was one of them. And he took the kingship as a child, and then as a teenager, he starts instituting all these religious reforms and trying to bring the nation back, partly probably a lot to do with Zephaniah's influence because Zephaniah was a reformer, and, and he talked a lot about the day of the Lord. And uh, so we talked about that. The times that he lived in uh, was like this. Israel had just experienced, or excuse me, Judah had just experienced two really rotten kings. They were bad. Matter of fact, when Josiah was, was a little bitty boy, they had to hide him so that he wasn't executed so that he couldn't take the throne. It was just a rotten time. But when Josiah comes in, he starts instituting all these reforms. And, uh, and Zephaniah was uh, a part of that reforming thing. And so he, he calls the nation of Judah to repentance and it's early enough in Josiah's reign that he's probably, God's probably given them a chance to repent. You know, sometimes in these minor prophets, God says, uh, it's all over with. Forget it. It's coming. You can't do anything about it. But there are other prophets, minor prophets, where they're calling the nation to repent. And God says, if you'll just turn and if you'll just repent, I'll relent. And this was probably one of those times. And so we went through the book of Zephaniah and we talked about the judgment on Judah and the judgment on all those nations around Judah. And then uh, we talked at the end of the book while, where God kind of says, hey, I'm going to put all this back together now. 
Yeah, it's all going to fall apart, but I'm going to put it all back together. We're going to convert the nations. The nations are going to be coming to you. It was really a great kind of last portion of the book. It was a great hopeful kind of thing. And then here are some takeaways we took from the book. God, if God is primarily a God of wrath, like so many people think he is. So many people think that God is just a God of wrath. He's just mad. He's just angry. He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He's always trying to figure out what you did wrong so he can point it out. If that's who God is, why is he so patient? Because he's extremely patient. I mean, with the nation of Israel, with the children of Judah, he waited hundreds of years before bringing to pass what he said he was going to so that they might turn. He's just incredibly patient. If he's a really, really a God of wrath the way so many people think he is, then he should just bring it and not give us a second chance. But he doesn't. He gives us a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a 250th chance. He's patient with us. Another takeaway we had from this book was the day of the Lord will be either a fearful or a freeing thing. And it's all going to depend upon where you stand with God. It's funny, I think I may have told you, as a hospice chaplain, I watched a lot of people die. And I've watched people die peacefully, smiling, and I've watched people die kicking and screaming. And it all depends upon your relationship with the Lord. And uh, that day of the Lord will be the same way. God wants to turn repeating sinners into repentant sinners. When God brings judgment, it is not, I've told you this before, it's not to get back at you, it's to get you back. He's trying to get you to turn. When you disciplined your children, was it for the purposes of destroying them? No, you might have wanted to, but it wasn't for those purposes. It was the purpose for the purposes of getting their attention, getting them to change, getting them to turn. And if you had to discipline them more than once, and I'm sure you probably had to, did your method, did your motives change? No. It was always to get them to turn and come back. And God is the same way. He just wants to take a group of repeating sinners and turn us into repentance sinners. And so that kind of changes the fact that God is, when we say God is a God of wrath, we think he's just ugly and angry and he just wants to get at us. He's not. He's trying to get our attention. And, and if he's having to turn up wrath, it's probably because we've ignored him in every other way possible. You know, and we're really good at that, if you want to know the truth. Maybe I should speak for myself. I'm really good at that. And so sometimes if we've ignored him in any every way possible, this is how he chooses to get our attention. All right. And then a final takeaway from last week. God is as excited and happy about us and who we can be as as a parent is, over their newborn. The problem is we don't believe it and we don't reciprocate it. It's really hard for most of us to, we get, especially when you go through the Minor Prophets, Dave referred to that Facebook video I shot. I am so tired of the Minor Prophets. Just got to tell you. I love teaching to you, but I will be ready to get out of the Minor Prophets. It's depressing. And... Uh, I go home at night, my wife says, how was it? Oh, it was okay. You know, just, it's depressing. So I'll be really glad to get out of there. But, but it's much easier for us to see God like that than it is to have a picture of God who is excited to see us, as excited to see us as a parent is to see their first newborn child. But yet, that's what Scripture teaches us. 
That's what Jesus was trying to get across to people. Remember the story of the prodigal son when he finally returns home? The father runs to him. Remember the one sheep out of a hundred who goes off and the shepherd goes to find him and then rejoices when he finds him. So if we thought of God more like that, it would probably change how we respond to God and, and relate to God and, and act for God. So, so that's that book. That's the book of Zephaniah. We're going to start a new book tonight, and I just want to preface it with this video. So see if this punches any buttons for you. This morning I got up and got ready quickly because I had to get a lot of stuff done. I sat down at my desk to start getting my stuff done and I spilled my coffee so I got a sponge to clean it up and I figured I'd take an extra minute to clean the whole desk because a clean desk would help me get my stuff done. When I was finished I realized I hadn't eaten anything and I didn't want to be hungry while I got my stuff done so I went into the kitchen and I was out of cereal. When I got to the grocery store, I remembered a bunch of other stuff I needed to get, and I figured I was already there, so I did my shopping for the week so I didn't have to worry about it while I got my stuff done. When I got home, I didn't feel like cereal anymore, and so I made an omelet and I did the dishes so I wouldn't have to do them after I got my stuff done, and then I went out to get some oil from the hardware store because my desk chair is kind of squeaky and I didn't want to be distracted by a squeaky chair while I got my stuff done. When I got back, it was getting kind of late, and I knew I wouldn't be able to get my stuff done today, so I started watching the Twilight Zone marathon on TV. I just have to make sure I get to bed early because I want to be well-rested tomorrow so I can get my stuff done. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> I remember being in seminary, and it was finals week, and I had a huge final coming up the next morning, so I had prepared. I was going to study and that was the night my family decided they would start a crossword puzzle. I love crossword puzzles. Crossword puzzles are like crack to me, you know. And so I'm supposed to be studying for this major exam in grad school. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm still working a jigsaw puzzle. Hadn't looked at a bit of anything I was supposed to study. I squeaked through, but it was just like that guy right there. Just that guy. And uh, my children have this. They get it honestly. My wife will do the same thing. She'll say, I'm going to go in the bedroom and get such and such. And then I won't see her for like three hours. <laughs> and I'll go in and say, oh, I thought you were getting something. Well, yeah, but I saw this. And it was, again, it's just like the video. She, the whole room was tore apart because she was fixing something. I don't know. Why do I bring up procrastination? Because that has a lot to do with this book that we're going to study this evening. You see the man hugging the eye? That's because this is the book of Haggai. Haggai, okay? Haggai. It's the book of Haggai. Uh, and in the background, you see kind of the ruins of a temple. That's because the book of Haggai is about restoring the temple, going back to work and rebuilding the temple. That's what this book is all about. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about Haggai. We, we really don't. We know his name means festival, and I haven't figured out what that has to do with anything, but we know that that's what it means. His name means festival. He was a part of the second return of exiles from Babylon. Okay, now remember, a little history here. When Jerusalem and Judah finally fall to the Babylonians, they 
exile. They take away all, almost all the people. They left a few people, but they take away almost all of God's people into Babylonia. And there they are in exile. They're slaves there. And they stayed there for 70 years. And then at the end of those 70 years, the kingdom of Persia comes in, wipes out the Babylonians, and they take over. Well, Cyrus, the king of Persia, was a very tolerant man. And once he was in control, he told all of God's people, hey, anyone that wants to go back to your homeland, you're free to go. Now, he didn't give them back the homeland. They were still, he was still over that land. But he did let them go back and rebuild. And so the first group that went back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding was a group under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And he was kind of the prime minister, if you will, there, and a prophet by the name of Joshua. And so they go back to build the temple. And they start building the temple, and of course, they're excited. God's bringing them back into their land, and, and they go back with a lot of vigor and, and a lot of zeal and a lot of enthusiasm, but they underestimated how hard it was going to be. I mean, it was really, really hard work. Think of it this way. Uh, a nuclear bomb wipes out Atlanta, and you're a group of a handful of people that's going to go back and rebuild the city. You know, that's kind, of, that's kind of what it felt like for them. And so the work was really hard. Uh, not everybody was happy that they were back. A lot of the surrounding people were not just happy, they were angry. And they were, they were a hindrance to them. They were a thorn in their side. They were, they were against them. They were hassled by their enemies. And then they had to struggle for shelter because everything was wiped out. They had to struggle for food. So it was really, really hard for this first crew that goes back to build the temple. And so they lost heart. And so they decided, you know what? We've got to have homes. So let's start building our homes. And before long, they had just abandoned rebuilding the temple. They started working on their own homes. You know, and they were building these really nice homes. They were taking care of themselves, and they were doing great, but God's temple was still in disrepair. And so the second group of exiles that come back, in that group is a prophet by the name of Haggai. And God starts speaking through him to this group of people about their procrastination in doing what they were supposed to do, which was to set up the temple. And, and that's what this whole book is, is Haggai calling them back to the original task of rebuilding the temple. They had abandoned it, and they were focusing on their own wants and needs. Uh, and because of that, God allowed them to suffer droughts. He allowed them to suffer crop failure. Things just got tough because they had abandoned the original primary priority that they would came for. Now... Even before we get into the book, what does all of that have to do with us? You know me. I can wait you out. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we are. How many times, not, don't show, don't raise your hands. Uh, but how many times do we put what we want ahead of what God wants? 
How many times do we drop a few dollars in the plate, but we're willing to spend an exorbitant price for that new car we want? I'm not, I'm not harping on you if you've got a new car, okay? I'm, I'm not, I'd like to have one too. Uh, but what I'm saying is it's really easy to focus on us. Building up our house, building up what we have, building up what we want, making sure life is good for us. And then what happens here among the body of believers, among the church, not just Warren, but in general, what happens here is kind of like a second or third afterthought for us. Uh, you, would be, you would be really shocked if you knew just how many people in a, in a church our size contribute nothing. I mean, it would shock you. Uh, and, and this is kind of what Haggai's getting at. And, and I'm not making a plea for you to start contributing, although that would be wonderful. But that's not what I'm after here. What I'm after is that's a, it's just like Haggai's day when they decided they would focus on their own homes first and leave the temple in disarray. This is the whole core of what this book is about. So when he arrives on the scene, God's people are discouraged. They're disheartened because, like I said, God had let drought come. He'd let crop failure come, all of these kind of things. And so this is, this is what he faces, and this is how he addresses them. Let me give you a simple outline. I've already talked to you about the prophet. Let me give you a simple outline. Talk to you about the circumstances, too. My mouth got ahead of my slides. Here's the simple outline. One, chapter one, fix your priorities. And then the second point of the outline is chapter two, focus on God's presence and his promises. It's a really simple outline, but it's a really powerful strategy. Fix your priorities and focus on God's power and his presence. If you and I did that in our personal lives, in our work life, in our church life, in, in wherever life, things would change radically. And if we did that as a group, things would really change radically, not just here, but in our community and everywhere else. So this is kind of how Haggai approaches this. So let's look at the first one, the fix your priorities. If you've got your Bible there or some electronic device, look at Haggai chapter 1. Let's look at the first 11 verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to, by the hand of Haggai to the prophet Zerubbabel. Uh, excuse me, I read that wrong. Came from the, the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Zerubbabel is like the prime minister over things, and Joshua is the high priest. Those are the two big leaders that were back in Judah. Excuse me for just a minute. So, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So what they were saying was, Yeah, yeah, we need to do it, but it's just not the right time yet. We need to get these other things taken care of first, and, and then we'll get to that. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then... The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, 
lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, he repeats this again. Anytime scripture repeats something, it's important. Consider your ways. Hey, you need to do a little self-evaluation here is what he's saying. Have you sown much? Excuse me. You have sown much and harvested little. Okay, so Haggai's saying, okay, let's do some self-evaluation. Let's, let's look at things for the way they really are. You've sown a whole lot, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You're, you clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. In other words, you're not keeping up. Nothing's working. It's never enough. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. Look at yourselves. Take a self-evaluation. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the, on the grain and the new wine and the oil and on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their laborers. What is God saying here? Say it again. Say it loud. Yes. I'm trying to get your attention. Yeah. And he's trying to get their attention because their attention has wandered off of where it should be. Boy, that is so easy. I have my granddaughter, and sometimes I'll pick her up from from Mother's Day out in, in the afternoon. And trying to get her to the car is a chore. I mean, it's like, Squirrel, and she's off there, and, and, and she's over here, and she sees, and she has to stop and pick something up, and I'm saying, can you just walk a straight line? But that is so much like us. It really is. We get so distracted. It's so easy to take our eyes off the prize, if you will, and start looking at other things, and, and, and God is basically saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention because you wondered you know, there is a priority here, and you've made a whole bunch of smaller things your priority. And, and this is all I know how to get your attention. So if chasing what you think is a priority over here is really not panning out, you should rethink that. Consider yourselves. It's amazing how we will do something in life, and it doesn't really work. And so we think, well, if we just did it harder, it would. And so we try whatever it is twice as hard, and we get twice less the results. And then we turn it up. It's like your kids. When you're talking to your kids and they're not listening, what do you do? You talk longer and you talk louder. And when that doesn't work, you talk even longer. And you talk even... If what you're doing is not working, you should try something else. Who was it that said doing the same thing and expecting different results is the definition of insanity? 
And so God is basically saying, okay, I gave you a priority out here, and you've wandered off, and you've made these things your priority. But while you've chased these priorities, nothing's working for you. You know, it, you're, you're gathering stuff and putting it in bags with holes in it. You're not, it. It's not working. So it's time to get back to the priority. It's time to get back on track. And uh, you've, you've got your priorities all wrong. An interesting thing, usually in the minor prophets, when a prophet says something like this, they want to stone him or ignore him all the more. This is a little different here. The people respond to the message. And God's spirit starts to stir them up to go back and work on the temple. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit. Circle that word if you write in your Bible. Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. I, I personally don't believe that Scripture is... is written haphazardly. I think it's very intentional in how it's written and, and the words it uses. So why is it that he says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of the people? Why is that so important? They're the leaders. They're the leaders. Absolutely. And as the leaders go, so goes the nation. As scary as that is in these days and times. Why else would he have specifically used those words and, and, and talked in that way? That's right. It was inspired. They didn't come up with this themselves. God did this. You know, they, they couldn't take credit for it. Exactly. Any other thoughts? Yes. Maybe they were depressed? I think so. I think they most certainly were. I think when they got there to do the job, it was harder than they thought. That was depressing. And then when they decided to take care of their own homes instead of the temple, then God starts shutting down the rain and shutting down the crops, and things were hard. I think they were depressed. And I, I do. Keep your finger there and go one book over. This is the book we'll get to next week. Go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. You know this verse. You've heard this verse before. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my, what? Spirit, Spirit says the Lord of hosts. It's so easy for us to think that 
God's calling us to do this something. God's not calling us to do something. He's calling us to make, himself, make us available to him so he can do something through us by his spirit. And I worry about that. I think I've talked to you about this before. I worry about that here at Warren because we're a big church and we have lots of really talented people and we've been doing this for over 100 years and we know how to get things done. And, and we can get things done. But it's really easy to get things done on our own and rather than wait for God to move us and then move through us and do it by his spirit rather than our initiative and, and our wisdom and our insight. Uh, and so if Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, if the temple was going to be rebuilt, God was going to have to do it through them. They couldn't do it for God. God had to do it through them. And so what that means is for us, we need to quit worrying about what do I need to do for God and think more like, how can I open myself up so he can do whatever he wants to in and through me? Which is much scarier, just by the way. That's way scarier than saying, okay, God, you want me to teach a life group? Okay, I'll teach a life group. Well, that's easy. That's much easier and less scary than saying, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Need to be in his plan. And, and, and if we take our own initiative on, on things, sometimes it's our plan. And, and, and we get so, I mean, we're trying to do it for the right reasons. We're trying to do it for God, but we get way ahead of him. And uh, you ever had children that determined they were going to help you, like, clean out the garage or something? <laughs> and, and they got so far ahead of you, it was like, please just stop. Go play or something. Because they were so far ahead of you, it was harder to get done what you wanted to get done. I think that happens between us and God sometimes. And he would just rather have us say, can you sit still for a minute and let me blow my spirit in you, in your heart, in your mind, and your brain, so I can direct you in what I want done. But that's just a little more scary because we don't have control over that. Know, maybe I'm just preaching to me. Maybe it's just me, but it feels that way. And... The better we are at stuff, the less we depend upon him. Some of you may have seen a post I did the other day that said, you know, when we get more and more successful, that's when we should be praying more and more and be more and more dependent on God. But usually it's the other way around. And, and, and so this is what God, through Haggai, is trying to tell his people. You have to fix your priorities. And the priorities start with me and what I need you to do. And what I want you to do is build this temple. And I want you to let me do that through you. So get your eyes off of your houses and everything else and get them back on that priority. So that's your fix your priorities. The second part of the outline, focus on God's presence and focus on his promises. So as, as the people go back to work building the temple, it, it, it's, it's really not about what they can do. Because what happens is they go back to build the temple, and then they hit another discouragement. And you know what that discouragement was? Comparison. Comparison. It's a great discourager. I'm pretty happy with the car I have until I saw my assistant got a new car, and I went out and looked at it today, and I had car envy. I mean, bad car envy. Uh, comparison is a big discouragement. So they had this discouragement about how hard the work was going to be, and so they wound up diverting from the work and, and building their own houses, and then 
all the produce and the rain and everything shut down, the crop shut down. Then they were really discouraged. So now Haggai's got them back on track and they're going back to build the temple. But here's the discouragement now. They look at what they're building with their few feeble hands, brick upon stone upon stone, but they remember what the former temple was like. The temple of Solomon before Jerusalem was destroyed and ransacked, a beautiful edifice unlike any other. And, and then they look at this little thing that they're building out of all this charred stone, and they get discouraged. They get really, really discouraged. Um, look at chapter 2. Look at verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Boy, don't you wonder why he keeps repeating that? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to go by first names now? But he just keeps doing that. And to all the remnants of the people, and say, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Now listen to this, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Hey, you got the first names. The son of, no, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. He says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The first thing God does is he reminds them that it's not about their prowess. It's not about their production. It's about his presence. The first thing he says in verse 13 over here is, I am with you. Notice how many times he says this. God's presence trumps everything else. I mean, get that in your, in your head. Get that in your spirit. God's presence trumps everything else. Notice how many times he says it. Verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. And then in verse 4, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. God's presence trumps everything. Remember when... when uh, God got angry with the children of Israel after he'd brought them out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're moaning and they're groaning. And God says, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. Moses, you can take them on, but I'm staying here. And what does Moses say? You remember? Uh, yeah, if, I, if you're not going, I'm not going. Because Moses knew that it was all about God's presence. That's key. It's not about God's power. It's not about God's plan. It's about his presence. All those other things, his power and his plan, and all, those all flow out of his presence. And, and so God tells them over and over again, yeah, I know that you remember how great it used to be, but I'm here. It's kind of like, are you more interested in a beautiful building or the man, the, the God who that building is all about? I mean, which is greater, the building that celebrates him or him? And so God kept saying, I'm in your midst. I'm with you. And then God promises to make the temple that they are building more glorious than Solomon's temple. Look at verse 6. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He keeps saying the Lord of hosts. You know that means the Lord of armies, right? So it's, it's like, I have all the resources to do this. And he says he's going to make this even bigger and better. Any idea why? Let me back up. Any idea how? Well, if you're thinking building, he's already said he's going to shake all these other nations and pull the gold and silver and, and build it. But there's a much greater reason why the latter temple will be better than the former. And specifically, when you, his presence will be in it, who comes to the temple in the New Testament? Jesus. The Lord himself walks into the temple and cleanses it. Remember, he got in a lot of trouble over that. And, and, and so, God is speaking way outside the box for them. And I don't think they got it until Jesus walked into the temple. But he goes even further than this. He makes some global promises. Look at the latter part of chapter 2. Look at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the first month. Now, do you realize that Haggai prophesies for four months? That's it. Four months of prophecy. And it's really specific. We know the exact dates. It's from August the 29th to December the 18th of 520 B.C. That, that's interesting. I mean, because a lot of these other prophets, they droned on for years. Four months for Haggai. Also, here's the thing about Haggai. He's the only prophet, and I think this is why I love this book so much. He's the only prophet that did not talk about judgment. It's kind of a breath of air, fresh air in the midst of the minor prophets. He's the only prophet that didn't talk about judgment. So he only prophesies for four months. Here's the second time the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 20. It says this, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th, month, 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. He said that earlier, too. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horse and their rider shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is a much more global vision than, than just for that day and time. Uh, and so this is the book of Haggai. 
Now, before we get to the takeaways, what do you take away from this, this book? Because it seems a shame to spend all this time rattling on about it and not take anything away from it. So what's your takeaways? Turn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't take your eyes upon, off of Jesus. It's a good takeaway for this. Yes? Right, right. So for you, one of the big takeaways is this becomes personal. We're not talking about a, a stone structure temple, but we're talking about ourselves, our person as the temple of God. And, um, and temples were meant, remember the, the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness? If you look at the tabernacle in the wilderness, now it was purple and reds and golds and golden pillars and, and it was just gaudy, if you will. I mean, it was just stuck, and it, and it sat on dirt in the desert. So it just stood out in the midst of the wilderness. And we're called to be the temple or the tabernacle of God, to stand out. A, a lot of the, t the, the big cathedrals in the Middle Ages were, were phenomenal structures. Why? Because they were supposed to represent God. And, and we still have the same calling. And, and never forget that if you profess to be a believer and, and the people that know you're a believer, you are the billboard for who God is, which is really scary. You're the billboard for who God is. They will take their clues and their ideas about God from what they see in you. 
And, and that's, a, that's a big burden to carry, but if you let the Spirit of God fill you and work out through you, then that's not as scary as it sounds. But yeah, that's a great application to this book is what about us as the temple of God? Anybody else have a takeaway? Yes. Exactly. So we go back to the very beginning and we talk about the principle of the fact that we don't know why God does what God does. So obviously God knew in his plan why he was going to name Haggai, Haggai's representing festival. Mm-hmm. guys should be up here teaching. Really. Really. I'm putting in all this work and you guys already have this. You're right. Good point. Good point. And Haggai was pretty straightforward with him. I mean, he, he didn't dance around and do a lot of poetry with them at all. All right, let me give you some of the takeaways I came from. Those are great. I'm serious. We should just take turns and let you come up here and teach this. Here's a takeaway. Your choices matter. Your choices matter. The children of, of, of Israel, the people of Jerusalem when they came back, they had to make a choice. Build the temple or do something easier. Do what God wants. Do what I want. And, and our choices matter. Even the small ones matter. Sometimes when we don't even know they matter. It's really scary to me now uh, to be the dad of two daughters. One, what? 34 and 32, something like that. It's really scary to me when they say, you know, Dad, I remember when you, and I'm going, oh, no, what did I do? You know, or I remember when you said, and I'm going, oh, I hope this is good, you know. That's scary. But those little choices in those moments matter further down the road. So there's one takeaway. Here's another one. Your present situation can be both a revelation and a result of your choices and your priorities. That's kind of a mouthful. You need to let that one sink in a little bit. Your present circumstances can either A, reveal what your choices and your priorities have been, or your present circumstances are a result of those choices and circumstances. Uh, I have a small dent in the front of my car. I would love to tell you it's from somebody backing into me, but it's actually from me following too close. That's what that is. And uh, 
so I went to see about getting it fixed, and it was going to be, a, and it's a small den. It's not much bigger than this. It was going to be like $1,200. I still have a small dent in my car. <laughs> Does that tell you something about my choices and my priorities? You know? This is, this, you could spend a lot of time thinking about this. We'll just leave it land here. Your present situation can be both a revelation and a result of your choices and your priorities. They can be good, revelation, good results, not so good, revelation and results. But our lives are made up of seemingly an infinite number of little choices. So never forget that the little choices matter. They, they matter more than the big choices because there's a whole lot more of them and they're more of a cumulative effect to them. Another takeaway. Any priority you put ahead of God is actually a liability, not a priority. Anything that you put ahead of God, any priority you put ahead of God ceases to be a priority and starts to be a liability. You may not see it right up front. Usually you won't. You know, if, if you choose to ignore those shingles or two that are off your roof, probably won't be a big deal now. May not be a big deal six from, months from now. May not even be a big deal a month from now. But when it starts to leak, it becomes a really big deal. And so, if you put leisure, money, whatever, ahead of your house becomes a liability. The same thing happens with God. Anything you say, well, God, yeah, I know you want this, but oh, you're already in liability territory instantly. And, uh, and, and you've heard me say this before, but when somebody says blah, 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 but, you can forget everything that came before the blah, blah, the but. It's everything after that you should pay attention to. Okay. Yeah, honey, I know you told me to take out the trash, but <laughs> you can forget all the first part. It's everything that comes after that's problematic. So, any priority put ahead of God is actually a liability. Realigning your priorities can actually revive your productivity. Which sounds like a very business thing to get from the prophetic book of Haggai. But it's true not only in business, but it's true in your personal life. It's true in your spiritual life. If you realign your priorities... It'll change your productivity. When Haggai confronted them about them building their own houses instead of rebuilding the temple, all of a sudden, they started building the temple and making progress because they realigned their priorities. You can see this anywhere. I see this in, in my counseling office in marriages all the time. When husbands and wives realign their priorities to focus on their marriage, Marriage gets better. Who would have thought, right? How do you figure that happens? But yeah, when you focus on that, that gets better. Golfers who realign their priorities and focus on their golf game, their golf game gets better. The same is true spiritually. Realign your priorities and you'll be more productive. Much of our mood is determined by our focus. Okay, I admit this is a kind of a counselor takeaway, but just humor me. 
Much of our mood is determined by our focus. So it's possible that some, not all, but some of our discouragement and our depression could be relieved by readjusting our focus. How does that come out of the book of Haggai? Well, when their focus was on their own stuff, they got discouraged. When their focus was on how big a job the temple was going to be, they got discouraged. When their focus was on this temple is never going to be like the old temple was, they get discouraged. This is why God said like three or four times, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. In other words, look at me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when we realign our focus, it changes our mood. I was listening to NPR today in the, in the car, which is a sign that I'm old. Okay, I'm just telling you, it's just a sign. You start listening to NPR, it's all over. Um, but I was listening to NPR, and they were doing a segment called The Happiness Project. There's actually a podcast out there called The Happiness Project, where they take scientific data and, 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 and try to make it practical to improve one's happiness. And there was like the, I, f- I forget the title they gave it, but it was the idea that if you, at the end of the day, focus on three things that were good about your day, you wind up being happier. Just that simple. That's an illustration of this takeaway right here. Your focus, a lot of time, will determine your mood. It just will. We could go into a lot of examples about that, but we need to finish this thing up. So we'll give you one more takeaway. God's power and presence can take something that doesn't seem that great and make it amazing. They were complaining because their temple that they were rebuilt wasn't going to be that great. And God says, you don't get it. It's not about the temple. It's about my presence. It's about my power. I can make it great. You know? I was not worth shooting when I got married. I just, my wife would, if she was here, you would hear a big amen. I'm not sure I've gotten any better, a whole lot better yet. But, uh, but the difference was, I was lost. I was 21 years old when I got married. I was as lost as I could be. I was so lost, I didn't even know the questions to ask. I was so lost, I didn't care whether there was a God or not a God, whether there was a Jesus or not. If they'll just leave me alone, I'll leave them alone. We'll be okay. That's where I was at. Uh, But the difference that happens when Christ comes into your life takes something that's not that great and salvages it, sometimes amazingly so. And many of you in this room have amazing stories to that end. And it all comes from focusing on the power and the presence of God and allowing him to to take rest right in the middle of you and drive. I've told you before, when I gave my life to Christ, my prayer was, I've been driving my life now for 22 years. I was 22 years old. And I've just been going in this big old circle. So here's the keys. I'm sliding over to the passenger seat. Car's yours. When that happens, everything changes. It's risky. It can be scary. But everything changes. And Haggai was saying, you have got to get that back in the center of your life and your focus. And when you do that, things will change. 
That was a lot of talking for just two chapters, wasn't it? <laughs> Anything else before we go? All right, Zechariah is next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for this book. I'm grateful for the things that you instruct us out of text that's ancient. But though it may come from ancient text, the truths are still just as relevant today as ever. Because that's what truth does. It never changes. It's still relevant. still applicable. And I pray that you would help us to apply what we learn, what we hear, what we study. If we don't, Father, there's no power. There's no power in truth that's not applied. That the purpose of truth, Father, is not truth in and of itself. It's transformation. And so I pray, Father, every Wednesday night as we leave here that somehow there would be some kind of transformation that would take place in our lives based upon your word that we've heard. And that is my prayer this evening, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.